0: So, Helen, there's, there's been a topic of discussion at, at Eater HQ for the last few weeks, a restaurant that I don't think you've actually been to yet, if I know your dining habits as well as I think I do, which is Saydell's.
1: Oh, man, I am really excited to go there, and I have not been there yet. Today on the Eater Upsell, we have a super special guest, Greg.
0: It's pretty It's pretty exciting.
1: It's super cool. We're going to be talking with Yotam Otolenghi, who most Americans will know as the blockbuster cookbook chef of books like Jerusalem and Plenty and Plenty More. And any of our UK listeners will know as the author of those books, but also as the chef owner of some of London's coolest, hottest
0: restaurants. Yotam is influencing restaurants all across America, I think, in a very subtle and interesting way.
1: Yeah, he's the guy who really brought the Middle Eastern palate to the Cool Kids Club.
0: And we got so much stuff to talk with him about. But before we jump into our chat with Yotam, Helen, there's something I wanted to actually talk with you about.
1: Oh, bring it on. So the deal with Seydal's is it's the sort of Jewish deli style restaurant from Major Food Group, which is a restaurant group that I think you and I talk about quite a bit. It's true. They are the folks behind Carbone and Santina and Terezi. And I basically love all of their restaurants and then feel really, really bad about myself for how much I love
0: them. Right. It's You can be conflicted about it. I feel very I think, conflicted. I feel like most people are. Well, I think one thing that I always, I love it or I don't love it, but... They like to kind of verge on theme restaurants a little bit, but like high-quality theme restaurants with hyper-specific, unusual themes.
1: I don't think it's even verging on theme restaurants, actually. I think they they are, in fact, manufacturers and sellers of theme restaurants on par with Disney World or the Rainforest Cafe or Hard Rock Cafe or any of these other, like, walk-in-the-door-you-are-in-another-land kinds of operations.
0: It's amazing, and I'll tell you what my idea of this theme restaurant is, this this new one. Seydell's. Seidels. Yeah. It is your wealthy Upper East Side Jewish grandma takes you to lunch in 1982.
1: Well, if she's your wealthy Jewish grandma, she's going to be on the Upper West.
0: Okay, sorry, the Upper West.
1: But <laughs> I, feel, I feel this, and this makes a lot of sense, too, because I think one of the thematic threads that runs through this restaurant group's restaurants is the 1980s. You know, they've got their Italian place, they've got their other kind of Italian place, they've got their vaguely French-ish place, but like what all of them have in common and I think what is sort of their defining aesthetic as well as like the thing they're trying to cultivate in in their clients is this feeling of just like no fucks given opulence. Yeah. And nothing encapsulates that more than the 1980s.
0: Totally, totally. Well, like my favorite detail is that uh, at this restaurant, Seidel's, the coffee is brewed in a Fetco, which is my favorite way to have coffee brewed, you know, a giant machine that makes coffee like in a deli. But it's poured from like a silver urn into your Seidel's coffee cup.
1: That's so beautiful. That's like a metaphor for the entire yeah. experience.
0: And they're playing like um, they're playing like Billy Joel. They're playing like Paul Simon, Simon and Garfunkel. I kind of have this suspicion that they plucked all these uh, the waiters from various kind of lunch counters. They're kind of like they're they're definite kind of New Yorkers, like older dudes, yeah, kind like of older thing. dudes that yeah. are kind of cool, but, but like not not you're not kind of your typical hotspot waiter
1: I love it I mean I mean that music that's exactly what you listen to if you're driving a Volvo station wagon in 1989 right exactly, like the, exactly. which I think was the year Graceland came out yeah I Exactly.
0: that the, the second I walked in it was it was like it's like it's, it's
1: yeah it's a feeling and it's I think if feeling. you're a certain kind of um which I, I am if you are a certain kind of like overeducated smoked salmon eating secular Jew. Like that that is a moment that is such a mm-hmm. moment in your head
0: so all that's great and I, I'm I am a fan i'm I'm a I'm a vocal advocate of this restaurant. however, uh, something that some of our colleagues and other people have complained about is the pricing is totally bizarre here
1: <laughs> well you know to carry the Jewish theme forward. how is this night different from all other nights like I mean that's that's what they do. that's what all their restaurants are is like the reason I feel bad about myself when I go to Santina, which I do all the time, is that it's so expensive, right? And like the prices are crazy. That's the whole, that's, that's the other thread. Like their two themes are the 1980s and everything costs three times as much
0: as it should. Right. However, there is a lot of imbalance on the menu and I have a sort of different attitude about it, which is like, hey, if I'm going to go here, I, okay, so, well, let me back it up for a second. I think that some people are taking issue with. When I was there, my wife had a inverted bagel grilled cheese sandwich that was delicious. Explain this food to me. Okay, so it's uh, they make their bagels there. They're really great. But instead of, as you would make a sandwich with a bagel where the shiny bulbous part is on the outside, they flip it so that the innards are on the outside, and then they grill that and put the stuffing in the middle.
1: Wait, so like you slice the bagel in half, uh-huh. and then you literally like flip it yeah so the soft bit is on the outside yeah that's insane
0: it was so good
1: that's crazy
0: and it's just you know they put whatever they put some good cheese in there and then they grilled it and it came on a plate with a little thing of coleslaw it was 10 bucks or like 11 bucks and it was great but there was this thing of like okay so they took a three dollar bagel and then they just like whatever they did something to it and now it's 11 bucks and now there's a breakfast sandwich That is basically the same deal, and it's $17. What else is on it? It comes with Munster cheese, eggs, and bacon.
1: So that's like a total of, what, like 74 cents of additional.
0: Right. So the thing is, is that I don't have a problem paying this because I think you're really paying for, you're paying for the silver urn that the Fetco coffee is coming out of. That is
1: such a good metaphor. Like, like. I just want you to talk about that over and over again. Like but,
0: but that's exactly what it is. That's
1: what all restaurants are, right? Yeah, like, they're think, just
0: they're turning a profit, you know?
1: But I think that, you know, especially in in the in the era of, of like talking about cost versus value, which is I think what we are currently kind of in the peak of, it tends to be reduced primarily to food costs. Right. And that's not what a menu price reflects. You know it it, and there's the overhead and there are labor costs and there's rent and there's stuff like that but there are also certain things that i think are communicated by marginal additions to cost like at restaurants like nello on the upper east side which is a famously ludicrously expensive restaurant in new york where something like a you know caprese salad is is $45 and it's like mealy out-of-season tomatoes and just like shitty shitty mozzarella and like nothing about the actual food on the plate Merits the amount of money that you're being asked to pay for it But what Nello is is basically a canteen for super super rich people and so the price is not a direct transaction like I give you these dollars and you give me this like tomato and mozzarella and leaves of basil that are approximately equal in value to the money I gave you the transaction is like, I'm giving you all of this extra money so that this restaurant caters to me, crazy, insane billionaire. Right. So at a much lower level, that that happens everywhere. Right? Like, mm-hmm. And I think at Seidel's or at these restaurants in particular, like Carbone, their, their 1950s themed Italian restaurant, is famous for how ludicrously expensive things like the veal parmesan are. It's like 74? Yeah,
0: because veal is expensive and they're probably not making any money off of it either.
1: You're being sarcastic, right? No, I'm not at all. Oh my god, I think you totally are wrong. No, I think they're making tons of money on the veal parmesan because it's it's maybe at best five ounces of veal that's been po- like pounded flat and like and, and what you're paying for though is not the actual food cost of that meat, what you're paying for is the entire experience. And to a degree, the cost also sort of serves as a cover charge. Like you get to be in this room and it's supply and demand and it is in no way egalitarian. It's an extraordinarily elitist way to approach things. But when you're, when you're operating within a capitalist society, and especially when food as it is right now is not just like a source of sustenance, but is also an act of like cultural presentation of self, the, the costs wind up containing way more than, like, the value of the food that
0: you eat. Definitely. Um, what I meant about the veal chop, though, is that I just know that that's a notoriously very expensive thing to have on your menu.
1: But not, like, $74 expensive. Well, that's, like, 74
0: That's true. But uh, I, yeah, I think they probably make up their money on, like, the pasta. You know what I mean?
1: I would be surprised, like aggressively surprised if there's a single thing on that menu that doesn't have like a major, a major, major built-in.
0: Yeah. But, s- so here's, so here's the thing though, to to to, to return to Seidel's as one of our colleagues pointed out, so, you know, you have the, you have the $11 grilled cheese sandwich. But then if you get a smoked fish platter, it's like 19 bucks and it comes with a bunch of bagels and it's like more food than you can eat. So it's kind of like you just got to know what to order. You got to game it you got to game it if that is something that matters to you.
1: That's a really good point.
0: Now, if you just want to go and just be like, this is a treat, that's kind of how I see a restaurant like this, and be like, whatever, I'm not even going to look at the prices. I'm just going to have fun and order whatever I want, and oh, guess what? It's not the most expensive restaurant in the world. Cool.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the psychological gamesmanship of a menu is really fascinating, right? Like Because if you're, say, showing up at 10 a.m. on a Saturday, and it's not brunch, it's like breakfast, right? and you look at a menu and there's an $11 grilled cheese and there's a $17 smoked fish platter, you might be psychologically prepared to spend $11 for bread and cheese, but the idea of spending $17 for a breakfast entree might not fly for you. Mm -hmm. And I would not be surprised if this is like an explicit line of thought that the creators of this restaurant had when they were putting together the menu, right? Like like the additional cost to producing the $17 sandwich, like it costs more to produce, like the, the food costs are there, but also, what you get is so much more. But I bet fewer people order that because there's a there's a a barrier between ordering something for eleven bucks and ordering something for seventeen.
0: It's like the thing that everybody loves that they know they like is gonna be is gonna have a, more of an ups like more of a, a more of a food cost more difference, of more of yeah. a markup, exactly.
1: Well, I think that's for, that's for sure the case too. I mean, there's this you know if you. I remember when I first moved to New York, every every fancy restaurant had a chicken paillard on the menu. They had a chicken paillard over a bed of arugula. And a chicken paillard is kind of like a veal parmesan. It's a, it's a relatively small piece of chicken that's been pounded out to nothingness. And it's grilled or seared, and then you serve it on top of a bed of lettuce. And my my sort of very sophisticated friend who had lived in New York for a long time and was impossibly glamorous pointed out to me that this chicken pieard with arugula is on the menu at all of these super trendy places downtown because it's for the models. It's for models to order. Like it has no carbs, but not only does it have no carbs, it is functionally no food,
0: right? <laughs> right.
1: And the chicken pieard, as she pointed out to me, was almost always one of the most expensive things on the menu. And the reason it was one of the most expensive things was because if you were that model or if you were sort of a model adjacent person, the chicken pie art is the only thing you're going to order. Like you're basically a captive audience. You have to order the chicken pie art. And it doesn't matter that it's a better value proposition to get the braised pork shoulder with potatoes and polenta because you're never going to get it. You're going to get the thing that is no carbs and basically no food no matter what the cost. So you price it, if you're the restaurateur, as high as you can because you want the models and you know they want to eat that and you just price it really high. So like grilled cheese – Smoked fish is like one of my favorite foods, but it's like, that's not everybody's cup of tea.
0: There, maybe there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a psychological kind of barrier there. I, I'm not someone that immediately goes for the smoked fish. Right, yeah. So, but maybe I would order it if I was, that's yeah not too expensive. Maybe I should give it a try. But I bet there's also
1: a lot of people who are like, this menu has a lot of challenging things on it. I just want a grilled cheese. Right. And so the thing that winds up being the default, like, you know, to be kind of judgy about it, the thing that is the lowest common denominator food item Of course you mark that up because it's the thing everyone's going to get. Right. It's like the Caesar salad, you know, like you order a Caesar salad and it's literally like a plate of chopped romaine hearts tossed in dressing with like five croutons. And it's like, really, this is 14 fucking dollars. This is a bowl of lettuce. Yep. You know, but everyone gets it. So you can mark it up.
0: I'm sure that if there are any chefs out there listening to this right now, they probably know (laughs) Have a lot of opinions about the things that we're saying right now. I
1: would like to hear those opinions, yeah. guys. Email tips at Eater. Tell us all about them.
0: Tell us what we're what we're getting right and what we're getting wrong because you know we're not restaurateurs. We're not chefs.
1: But we do have very complicated theories about what you do all day.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I want to know. We the like truth. to debate them.
1: We do. We have in the Eater Upsell Studio today. Yotam Ottolenghi, which if you're a home cook in America, that's just enough. Like, you're in, you're here. Um, Yotam Odalenghi um, owns a number of restaurants in London, in the UK, but here in the US, he is most famous for basically having at least one of his cookbooks on the bookshelf of everybody who cares about cookbooks.
0: That is so true. Um, and I see your cookbook a lot in restaurants, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, I
2: noticed that. Yeah, when I go to restaurants, then people bring them out and it's, it's, quite, it's nice well welcome Yotan thank you good to be here <laughs> so
0: what do you do when you see your cookbook in a restaurant <laughs> do you say hey that's me
2: <laughs> um, well I'm, I don't know what I do I mean it's it's exciting and I, I, I like to see um, to look at the menu and see if there's anything that <laughs> maybe I had something to do with uh but no it's it's just good and you know sh- this is um this is a nice time because chefs communicate with each other it's not like the old world when you know the chefs were keeping their secrets and i feel like i'm one of those people that share and people share back so it's always the beginning of a conversation if if i meet someone that cooks my food whether at home or or in a restaurant then immediately there's a begin- we start to divulge our secrets you know that's the, the best thing about but these days, there's hardly any secret. Over anymore. the
0: course of your career, do you think that it's been trending more in that direction? Chefs kind of communicating and sharing more and more?
2: I think so. I mean, I think there's no other way now because everything is so open in terms of communication, communication lines and pictures, and every, everything is just open for discussion. So it's very difficult to hide things, and it's also not useful for anyone anymore. I mean, people come and do stages. They're going to know what you cook and how you cook, and they move on to the next restaurant. I mean... There used to be days where, you know, the head French head chef used to be, have, like, his secrets and, and he wouldn't share them with anyone. But these days are over. And it's I think everybody benefits, really.
1: It's an interesting way for creativity to manifest itself, you know, because, like, the techniques and the ideas do wind up having a degree of provenance. You know, like, you'll make a certain recipe or you'll see a certain flavor combination. And for a cook or a diner who's fluent in the sort of global economy of cuisine, you'll say, oh, no, this is an influence from, you know... Otolenghi or this is an influence from, you know, Alan Ducasse or wherever it might be. There. So that kind of openness, it's not like giving away the secrets. It's just generosity.
2: Yeah. And we like to quote our, so I like to quote my sources of influence. I mean, there's a recipe in this book, in the Nopi Cookbook for um, a quail that uses butterscotch miso, and Scully, my co-author, saw the recipe in Lucky Peach. It's uh, it's a Christina Tosi recipe for something that she does with sweets, so she burns her miso. So we burned our miso and put it over quail and served it with pomegranate seeds and pickled walnuts. And so and I'm I'm more than proud to tell where this idea came from because it's part of the recipe, it's part of the story, it's how we learned about this idea. And there's, and I think there's, it's the nicest thing in the world to be able to show, like, you know, I read, I'm involved, I know what other people are cooking, and
1: we're having a conversation. So speaking of this cookbook, the Nopi cookbook, which is on the table in front of the three of us right now, is maybe one of the most physically gorgeous objects as far as cookbooks <laughs> go that I've seen in a really long time. Um, so that you can get a picture, listeners at home, it's this beautiful cream rectangle with a very simple... Skillet, like a black skillet on the cover. And then the thing that's most striking that we were talking about earlier is the edges of the pages are this gorgeous metallic gold. It's so elegant and glamorous. like it doesn't look yeah over the top. it's just so fun.
0: you always m- release these beautiful books. Uh, I think that <laughs> that's <laughs> the you. thing. I was actually just talking about this before we came down. I was mentioning to some coworkers you're coming in. I said these books have the most gorgeous photos, and they are the just the coolest to look at. Did you have any inspiration uh, you know did you draw inspiration for, from that visual style from from any other cookbooks was there any one that you were like this is something I To be I honest the do?
2: the visual language that uh, it evolved over the years has a lot to do with uh, not other books but other but rather by the way that um uh, the food is display- displayed in my shops in London mm. uh, essentially Sammy Tamimi who's a co-author of a few other books and he's a, my business partner and creative partner, he uh, and I have started uh, cooking together in two thousand and two. We open a cafe and a, and a takeaway shop that does beautiful mountains of food, a bit like a Middle Eastern market. And this is the kind of the the, the sensuality of the food and the way we display it has always dictated the way I l- I look at food from from then then on. And when it was time to publish the first book, all we did was kind of take that language and translate it to the page. So we took one medium, which is Food on display, and it needed to look great because we needed people to come and buy it. Because they wouldn't buy it if it didn't look good. Um, and we we translated it into a, a, a two-dimensional format. And then from one one book to the next, we carried on developing that language for, for books. And I think I don't work. I never use a food stylist. I style all the all the food myself. You know, the, there's someone in the in the test kitchen that cooks. I put it on the table and then on the, on it on the plate. And then there's a photographer that shoots and. It's always been my way of doing it to try to make it look as much as possible the way we'd serve it, and that's that's the language we're, we're we've kind of developed over the years.
1: With your with your previous books, I feel like, and you know, you mentioned these big mountains of food that you display at your at your takeaway shops in London. With the with the previous books, I think there's also been this incredible pervasive visual sense of abundance. Yeah. And with the Nopi book, which is your your most recent one, it just came out. Um, it's actually very austere. You know, the interior is beautiful and and you know, there's there's a lot of beauty and color and abundance in the photographs, but there's a tremendous austerity on the cover and the the section headers. It has a different emotional tenor. Was that intentional?
2: Yeah. We tried to keep it maybe a little bit more reserved in a sense because it's the first book that is kind of reflects an ethos of a restaurant before all the books that I've I've authored or co-authored were always kind of based on a home cook experience you know i've always had the home cook in mind when i design recipes and this time it was taking the restaurant in london nopi that has a very clear visual um sense you know that we have a lot of brass so hence the gold on the on the cover The the golden ring is a kind of a logo um that is or not even a logo but it's it's a it's a it's a theme that goes throughout various aspects of the restaurant so it was very important for me to keep that look. And, you know, when you serve food in a restaurant, unlike the, the shops, it's normally on a plate, so it's contained. So that sense of containment had to be um, also delivered through through the book. So that's why it looks a bit more reserved. But it's also quite important for me to emphasize that although it does take its cue from a restaurant, it was I always had still home cooks in mind. So the recipes had to be modified, and simplified to a degree to allow people to cook them. Because it's, although it's a beautiful object, it's still an object that I think people should take into the kitchen with them. It's not one of these restaurant cookbooks that is just there to, for professional to look at and learn a few new techniques and, and move on. These are really very doable recipes. Some of them might take you a few hours to, to cook, and some of them you'd, you'd be required to leave to marinate for 24 or 48 hours. But essentially, technically, it's, they're quite simple.
0: So can you walk us through the process of, like, what is it like to create one of these books? Like, Where does it start? How does the conversation start? What's, like, the first thing you do? It starts about two
2: years before publication, where if I co-author, actually, if I don't, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing because I've got a group of people. We work together. And we sit around the table and we say, "What is that book all about?" And uh, often it's got nothing to do with the final result. That initial meeting has got very little to do with what we're going to end up with because the journey uh, has, takes a life of its own. So, for instance, for the previous book, Plenty More, um, we said, "Let's just do it the opposite of Plenty. It's going to have a black cover." I'm talking about the covers in the U.S. are different in the U.K. are different from the covers in the U.S. Um, and the U.S. covers always have a, um, a food photograph on them
0: we love food photos yeah. here in america <laughs> <laughs>
2: in the uk it's slightly more subtle so there's always some some kind of illustration or some some something that is a little bit different so we thought we're going to do like the cover of no P- of plenty was white we thought we're going to have it black it ended up white as well uh and we but it had was a
1: good idea it was a good <laughs> idea, yeah, yeah. It just
2: didn't work. Or we had the vegetables, but actually, we turned it up into we. T- it turned into there was the, the the cooking um, utensils that are used in the kitchen. So they what when we when I collected the recipes and put them together, I realized this time I don't want to take the, talk so much about the ingredients. This time I want to talk about the techniques, and it only manifested itself through the process of collecting the recipes. So like like why are there five? cauliflower recipes in this book because one is roasted and one is raw grated and one is steamed and one is you know grilled so it was really very important for me to show why you could do so much with vegetables because you can cook them in so many ways so that's just things that kind of transpire as you as you cook as you put the recipes together the first stage is literally just choosing the recipes that you love Uh, often these are not recipes that are tested for the book they've kind of exist because either from the restaurant or from i publish a recipe column in the guardian in in, in the uk so i've got a bunch of recipes or ideas that i've already worked on and then we just start start re-evaluating them cooking them and seeing what comes up so that the narrative the stories comes through the testing and the retesting and i'm kind of an obsessing tester i test my recipes a million times and i've got this person woman in wales that has a family that she feeds only based on my on my <laughs> recipes Whoa. So every, yeah. have you met her oh yeah yeah we i know her very well she's cooked more than a thousand recipes of mine over the years and she has two kids another one on the way and a, a partner and his family around them and every recipe that i've ever published she tests for me and then writes a report
1: wait wow. so how does that process work like you come up with something
2: so i come up with an idea and I've got uh, two women working with me in my test kitchen, and we test and test and test. And when we're really happy, we write it down, and then we send it off by email to Claudine. She lives in, a, in rural Wales, and she has to cook the recipe at home and tell us how it worked for her, how difficult it was to get the ingredients, whether it took five minutes or seven minutes or nine minutes to bake that cake or whatever it is that she's cooking, how did people react uh so the whole process uh, to the tiniest of details and she sends her evaluation and uh and then then the recipe's out there when it's ready but often she's we need to modify things ba- based on her comments sometimes she would say it doesn't happen very often once every 20 or 30 recipes she says that that's not that's I didn't like that wow. which is kind of shocking because it went through all this process and we go like Shit, Claudine didn't like that, and um,
0: you value her opinion now
2: very much because she's been with me for years, and I, I know exactly. She knows, and and she's got other people around her. So sometimes it's good to let go and see what, what other people's reactions, because you're kind of wedded to your recipes and to your food, and it's very good to get someone else to with a different perspective to look at it. And she says, "Oh, my my father-in-law didn't really like that. He said it's, he said it's too spicy. It's a bit old-fashioned." I go like, "Well, maybe he's right in a degree." So. I don't follow her advice in- completely, but often I think she's what she says makes complete sense, and then we take it back and retest it and reevaluate it.
1: How did you find her?
2: She uh, used to live in London and helped me a little bit on my second book on Plenty to when we did the sh- I shot it at home and she came in to put dishes together when we shot. So it, it was the three of us, her, me and the cameraman doing the, the photographer doing the, the book. And then I just she moved to Wales and I said, "Oh, it's a shame. Maybe we won't be able to work together anymore." And then I said, "Maybe we will actually, because maybe you want to try them when you're in Wales." And and because she's so good at what she does, she's a perfectionist, and you know, she would tell me if something, if her butternut squash weighed 400 grams and not 700 grams, like I said. I just know I can trust her.
1: That's a beautiful relationship. <laughs> I also, I, I think it's rare. To hear of, a, of recipes in a, in a cookbook that go through such a rigorous testing process, too. Um, I mean, I, many, many, many years ago, I worked in cookbook publishing, and I remember walking into the office on my first day of work and saying, well, where's the kitchen? And my boss said, oh, no, no, we don't test recipes. Like, that's on that's on the author, you know, and it's in the contract. It says, like, you know, what you deliver is a manuscript of recipes that work.
2: Yeah, I think it's still the case. Yeah. The author has the responsibility. I don't, I mean, ver- I know that various authors have different ways of res- testing their recipes. I know I cannot sleep at night if the, if the thought, if, even if they've got the most slightest of doubts that the recipe wouldn't work for someone. It would kill me because, you know, the amount of energy that you invest into going getting the ingredients, getting ready, and if the recipe doesn't work, it's terrible.
1: Yeah.
0: There's a lot of big chefs that don't do it, though. Don't test, right?
1: Well, they... It's I mean, it's terrible, with, but then yeah. you only find out when, somebody, when your, your recipes just don't work. <laughs> your recipes
0: don't work. And then somebody hops on the Internet and says, hey, what the hell?
1: Yeah. Well, res- I think res- restaurant cookbooks are particularly fascinating because usually a recipe for a restaurant is written at either an extraordinary scale, like it feeds yeah. 80 people Or it relies on a full brigade that's doing me's and and everything like that. Absolutely, and
2: this is what Scully, my co-author, said to me, you know, my biggest challenge in life has been to take my recipes and turn them into something that people could cook at home because in the kitchen I don't think that way you know I don't measure my salt he says to me I just don't measure my salt or I don't think that I cannot have like 17 things in my mise en place section because I've got 4 hours to cook for 1 hour service or 2 hour service I mean this this is not how we do things at home so the process of taking these restaurant recipes dishes and turning them into recipes that people can cook at home has been very difficult (laughs) you know we had to make really hard choices what do you keep in and what you leave out how far can you go without losing the integrity of the dish so we it was really important for us that people could cook the the dishes at home that they could buy the ingredients in in normal outlets you know in, in shops and not like from a greek purveyor that can only supply you that the only place in the world you can get that cheese is from from them so they could actually use feta instead of that cheese. So all those kind of things were extremely important for me. And then Scully said, okay, well, I get it. I'll, I'll do a book that people can actually cook at home. Because for me, all my books have been doable. It was very important for me to keep on not disappoint my readers.
1: So you have, is it four or five this books This is number now? five. This is number five. So you have um, Otolangi and Nopi and Jerusalem, which are all, co-written with various people right and yeah. then and then plenty, plenty and books. plenty more came out of your guardian column yeah so did you think um that your life was going to take you into this position no. of being this blockbuster <laughs> cookbook author
2: <laughs> i remember quite clearly that when the first book that was published in the uk was a Tolengi cookbook it was published only quite a few years later in here uh, S- sammy and i were talking about this book that we're doing and we made we did it in such a kind of so it's such a different way in, in to which I do recipes today. I mean, we every rec- week Sammy would do these amazing Friday night dinners when I, my our partners would all get together and sit down and and he would cook like five dishes that were meant for the book and then we all sit down and write little notes and he would take them and fix them up later. There was pre-claudine pre-tested. I mean and i only i only did it that way because i thought it was the one and only book that we're ever going to publish you know it's like I, let's just make fun of it and we spent a year and a half just doing these dinner parties with recipes etc and you know because i mean i, I never thought that we, we were restaurateurs you know we were serving food to the public we we're not authors we were just doing a book because often restaurants have a book but uh, this take a life took a life of its own and now i almost see myself as a author rather than a chef or or a restaurant owner it's well you, got, wear, you wear
0: many hats you're doing a lot of stuff right now you know
2: yeah no i enjoy it i mean I, and i do spend most of my time doing books and, yeah. and writing recipes that's what i do for a living at the moment
1: well here in the u.s where your books have sort of had their second life plenty in particular has been such a blockbuster mm. and i think i mean it, we were saying earlier and i don't think it's an exaggeration that that almost every person I know has a copy of that book on their bookshelf and 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 I've talked to to folks in in the cookbook industry who are just I mean blown away because cookbooks don't do that well like book Mm. unless you're Ina Garten or it's you know 1978 and you're the gourmet cookbook like cookbooks sell healthily but like plenty has been a an extraordinary success it's the titanic of cookbook
2: but. Yeah, I don't know how this happened. I really <laughs> don't know. You um, didn't see it coming? No, because um, everybody told me, you know, you can't break into the American market if you don't have a TV program or something. And and also in the UK was, I didn't have, I, I've done a bit of TV since, but the success of my first books has had nothing to do with that. And it was really a word to, uh, you know, uh, um, word to mouth,
0: is that the right? Word, word of, of mouth. Word of mouth, mouth. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Word, word to mouth, mouth makes...
1: Way more so. Should we change yeah. that now? Yeah. We just, yeah, officially yeah. it is yeah. now word, word to, to mouth. mouth. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, uh, word of mouth things so, that people just started sharing that and sales wise, I, I, I never had an inkling that things are going to be as as good as they are.
0: So how did the what was the phenomenon? How did the publisher? Explain Would you that? like
1: wake up every morning and there'd be like another <laughs> crazy email being like we sold another ten thousand? Um,
0: the it, the first book
2: that was published was the Tulenki book, and all booksellers told me that it was some it was really weird because it it had a very different pattern of sales to any other books that i have ever sold so initially it sold moderately well so they sold in you know, a 3000 copies or something and they quite, but then all of a sudden after 2 or 3 months they started selling more and more so it never happens that way normally you sell a lot at the beginning with all the publicity and then it gradually kind of stopped and this book sold all right and then it started to climb up over 6 months or a year it just kept on selling more and more copies and um, and that was just because people were sharing the book um, in London. We had I had a restaurant, but outside London, there was people didn't know, so there was no way for them to learn about it either from just cooking. And I think probably the same thing happened with Plenty here because um, I I published Plenty. I did a tiny publicity tour. I was here for a week, uh, and things just it, it just took a life of its own, and things just starting to to. To work i don't know i don't have a theory
1: well plenty has been credited with uh, among other things also really kick-starting the trend towards middle eastern flavors in mm-hmm. the u.s and the dining scene and in, in home cooking in general and i i think it was really a question of it was it was the perfect kind of approach to cooking that very vegetable forward and spice forward and i think
2: it's the combination of vegetables and and middle eastern ingredients that were both kind of waiting to be discovered not vegetables were always known but the come to the fore not only in the vegetarian circles and the the middle eastern spices or the middle eastern palate has never been thoroughly um um I, 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 there were there's tons of Middle Eastern cookbooks that have been published over the years. Back in the UK, we've got Claude Rodin, which has published amazing books about the food of the oh, Middle yeah, East. Oh yeah, she's huge here too. And here too, and and but it took something for people to start cooking those with the, for the general public to start cooking with those ingredients at home. I mean, everybody knows now how wonderful hummus is and tahini and sumac and zaatar, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And these are the beauty of these ingredients is that they're very easy to use. You don't need to be um, a professional or even a semi-professional to know how to sprinkle za'atar over your hummus or over your labneh. I mean, they're just really, really easy to use ingredients. So it just happened that maybe I was in the right time in the right place to kind of show those things.
0: It's interesting because I have definitely noticed that some of those spices and some of those elements of that cuisine think have been absorbed by just kind of general new American cuisine at restaurants across the country like you'll see just this one element here or there in a way that I think would have been seemed kind of out of place a few years ago yeah
1: well I mean I think in the American restaurant trajectory there was a a period where that like accent flavor was always a little bit asian like for a while it was chinese yeah. and yeah. for a while it was, it was japanese it was, and most she, recently it was she korean for right She silly so and yeah. and now it's starting to be sumac and zatar yeah. and sesame and these yeah. these more
2: definitely and the same happens where where i am in the uk it was the same thing there was there was this kind of period you can tell about you can you can read books or magazine and you can see how there's this kind of Greek influences and North African, lots of couscous and harissa, and then you had. The, but the Middle Eastern, the Arabic food, has not had its its heyday yet. I mean, it has. It's having it now, but it, I think it came quite late. I'm not sure why. I think there's probably political reasons for that. But uh, but it has it has come late.
1: I think, I think there probably are. Polit- I mean, it, the political aspect is interesting, um, and I don't mean interesting in a like bland way. I mean, it's actually genuinely fascinating the way that we become interested in places through their food and Completely. it's such a method of humanizing well, when and i
2: think about japanese food in this country i mean it probably took a long time before it could become as popular as it did i don't know so much about japan japan u.s japan relationship but it's obvious that it had to it, you had to time had really to go, go before this. before you know japanese food could become so popular and I think well, Arabic food is. I mean, it's it's complicated. It's contentious, and it's but it's it's happening. So uh, I think it's it's only a good thing.
1: So you've had a really interesting trajectory. Um, before you ended up in restaurants, I was I was I've been I remember being very fascinated to note when I first was was becoming aware of you in your cookbooks and restaurants that you used to be a journalist. Yeah, just like us, Greg. He's one of us.
0: I guess you could call. Is it called that? I guess we
1: are technically <laughs> journalists. So uh, you're I mean, the new, other people are the new journalists. That, <laughs> <laughs> Podcasting is a form of journalism. Sure. When
2: I was in newspapers, there was no podcasts. There wasn't even internet, and uh, I was I was a news junkie. I was in a news desk for an Israeli daily, and I was a sub editor. I was used to get the news and put it together for for the for the morning edition, and I I loved that job. I it was there was so much adrenaline. So much smoke—it was just amazing. It was the early '90s, but I—I I didn't think I'd want to do that for the rest of my life. But it's definitely something that have.
0: So what was doing. what was the moment? When did you pivot and, and get into something else? Uh, I I studied at university.
2: I finished master's de- master's degree in philosophy and comparative literature, and I did the journalism. And then when I was nearing the age of 30, I thought like, "I've if this is just too stressful for me." Finally, funny, I ended up in a kitchen, which is probably more stressful, but. There was something about the world of words that I found I had to read all the time and and I thought I might be an academic and I started to kind of enrich myself and I felt a lot of pressure from, from this world and I thought like there's never a quiet moment like when I'm in the kitchen and there's nothing happening, I'm just working with my hands. So I decided to take a year off and I came to London and I went to cookery school and in the evenings I did some shifts in restaurants and I just found that even if there was a lot of work, it never put the same pressure on me than it was when I was doing other things. I felt like I came back home, I was physically exhausted, but my mind was clear and I needed that to, I thought it was just a much better thing to do and, and I really enjoyed that. I mean, I, I think I spent years, I don't cook in the kitchen anymore for quite a while. I'm, I'm back where I started now because I sit by the computer and write cookbooks. <laughs> but, uh, but for a long time, it was the right thing for me to do.
1: Do you miss working in the restaurant kitchen?
2: I miss it, but I know I can't do it because I'm, I won't be able to because I'm, it's, it's, it's something you really need to know. I mean, it's, it's, it, physically, it's very intense. You really need to have the agility and the, and the, and the peace of mind and, or the, the mind. I'm, I think I'm slightly too old
0: now. So when you walk into one of your restaurants, what's the first thing you look for? What do you what do? You, what do, you do? Like- when I walk into the
2: restaurant, the first thing I do is look at what people are having and uh I can tell a lot by just looking at the food <laughs> I, I think most chefs would tell you they can tell you if your dish is p- perfectly executed a part if it's over salted or un- under salted you can tell almost anything by looking at the dish really yeah, yeah. over
0: salting and under salting that right? you can't looking? tell that's
2: the only thing that's oh, only that's the only, th- 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 that's the only thing it. you can't tell the seasoning uh-huh. is not something you can tell by looking, but everything else over over cooking under cooking the the balance on the plate. I mean, if something is tired or not looking right, you can tell immediately. So I do look at what people are eating, and I try the food as soon as I can. And I either Sammy or myself or one of we're a partnership. There's four partners in the company. We always make sure we try the food every day. The, Quality control is probably the, the thing that is le- keeps me awake at night the most. It's the idea that someone cooks the food and it's not quite as it, it was supposed to be when it was conceived. And I think this is the nightmare of every chef, or it's at least it should be the nightmare of every chef, that things are not done the way you wanted them. And uh, this is why I've never expanded too rapidly. You know, we're in London, because this is it's, it's hard. It's really hard. It doesn't come off a conveyor belt with a formula. This is real ingredients, real people. Someone has a bad mood, they cook terribly and and, and someone's going to eat that. That's just horrific.
1: So So um your plenty and plenty more cookbooks are both vegetarian, but your restaurants serve meat, yeah. right? So what brought you to the decision to focus on vegetarian cooking in your column?
2: It was almost arbitrary because the Guardian newspaper in London's offices or were near Ottolenghi on Upper Street, the, my second restaurant, our second restaurant, and the the journalists used to come and eat there a lot, and they loved the, what Sammy and I do with with vegetables, so they just approached me to write a vegetarian column, and it was a tiny column; it was like a hundred words and a small, short recipe, um, and I just did it, and I think it wasn't it was it was. Co- completely not far-fetched to do because we really did focus on vegetables and we still do the meat and the fish were kind of a side thing it was mostly about the vegetables and the grains and and the stuff and the cakes we do a lot of cakes and uh, so that's how it all happened and then i started and then they liked what i did so they increased my my space and i from one recipe it was two and from one page it was it was two pages and this is how it grew and and in a sense, it became something of, I, I, had a, I was specializing in something. <laughs> it's quite important to specialize in something when you're a chef, because we do all sorts of things. And, but when you create your persona, you need to be picky. You need to stand for something. And I ended up standing for vegetables later on, more at least in ingredients and all sorts of other things. But the first thing that people got to know me for was the, was the vegetables.
1: Are you vegetarian yourself?
2: No. No, I'm not a vegetarian. Are people disappointed? Do you when
0: consciously they keep that? any sort of balance in terms of I'm not going to eat meat? or for one meal or yeah
2: i've always it's quite easy when you come from the part of the world from i'm where i'm from because it wasn't always such a meat heavy diet you know in the middle eastern in the middle east you can do with you know with chickpeas and rice and bulgar wheat and and all sorts of vegetables so meat is used a bit more sparingly or at least at least it used to be almost only for often only for flavoring like you use a bit of meat in your stock when you when you do stuffed vegetables or all that kind of stuff um, so it's not very difficult for me uh, to eat less meat, and I don't, I don't, I have meat every meal, not often, not even every day, but I love meat, so I can, I, I, eat what I, what I like, and I eat everything, but some people were not happy about it and initially when I got the Guardian column. I, there were a few angry readers saying, "How come it's not one of ours that writes the <laughs> vegetarian column? Because it's a vegetarian column, it needs to be a vegetarian." But I think this is a really old school way of looking at at this divide because these days people understand that it's not so much about you're a vegetarian or you're not a vegetarian it's much more about the vegetables right so you can eat whatever you like it's not a club uh, and you know the greatest chefs these days people who've 10 15 years ago were shying away from vegetables have vegetables at the top of their menus and this is really radical if you compare it to what was the case in the 90s or, or even later than that it was now it's a lot about vegetables which is a wonderful thing and it, it was kind of unthinkable uh, only probably a decade ago
0: i mean vegetables are cool i think everybody really loves them right now yeah but maybe one reason why i well, if your books are so successful is that their vegetables are kind of hard to cook intuitively you know
2: vegetables need a little bit more work I mean you can take a piece of good piece of meat and you put it on the grill and you put a bit of salt and it's absolutely fine it's, you can't say that about a potato can you I mean it just doesn't work that way so you need to give it a bit more help <laughs> uh, but I think vegetables have much more potential because you can do more stuff with vegetables so if we take the, the example of the cauliflower you can do tons of things with the cauliflower you can make a soup which is kind of probably not my first choice but you can char grill it and you know put lots of garlic and chili on it and get it to marinate and to absorb the flavors you can slow cook it for three hours in low temperature and get all the sugars to go crazy and then you put butter or sour cream on it and chives and beautiful things on it or you can grate it and make it into kind of a tabbouleh you can even make pasta you can you can use saffron and, and currants and, and coriander or cilantro and make it into a beautiful salad. There's so much you can do. I mean, you cannot say that about a piece of steak, right? (laughs) Nope.
1: (laughs) Which I think is why so many chefs are really excited to suddenly be able to put it at the top of their menu because it is such a showcase for technique and creativity.
2: It is, but people didn't realize it. And that's the funny thing. It took quite a while before the world to realize you can do so much with vegetables. And I think it has a lot to do with all these ingredients that are also available now, all these spices, all these you know, exotic herbs. And shiso, I mean, you just mentioned that, but there's all those kind of things that were maybe, maybe not available, you know, 20 years ago, but now they are. So you can just do so much with your vegetables.
0: So now it's the time in the show that for something we like to call the lightning round. And uh, this is nothing to be too afraid of. We're just going to ask you some questions. We ask all the chefs and book authors and restaurateurs these questions. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind.
1: Just be honest.
2: The first thing that comes to my mind. Yeah. Kohlrabi
1: perfect excellent we're done yeah that's it um no so the first question of the lightning round is if you walk into a bar that you've never been to before what is your drink order
2: i'm gonna have a martini and i'll see how they make it and i'm not a big drinker but i like them done properly so i'll have a you know a dry martini
0: vodka virgin
2: vodka based and uh and then i'll i'll see what i what takes me in, what grabs my attention next
0: if you're at an airport and you have like an hour to kill and you have money in your wallet what are you going to do i'm probably going to eat sushi
1: in an airport yeah
0: because uh, it's clean i mean of course it depends
2: on the quality of the rice and the fish etc but i don't want for people to cook for me in the airport i go for something like you know it's almost like a piece an apple for me it's like it's undressed it's simple i, I wouldn't want a stew or a soup or something like that
0: and you're blasting some music and you're singing along to it. What is that music?
2: I like the National.
0: Oh, A fine American <laughs> the band. Brooklyn's yeah. own. Yeah. yeah, I
2: know. That's why I said that. No, actually, I do like the National. <laughs> <laughs> you're not just playing to the crowd. Um, no.
1: It, on an average weeknight, when you're cooking for your family, what do you make?
2: So I've got very young kids. One of them is doesn't eat yet because he only has milk. Unfortunately f- for him. And uh, the other one is two and a half, which is a difficult age. So he likes all his f- 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 uh, food separate on the plate. So he's got the pasta, the pasta sauce, the peas, the beans, everything separate. So that's how we eat at the moment. All, of you, all of you eat you eat. Yeah, we w- I want to eat together with him. So I, I, I won't serve myself something that he doesn't get. So we've got a bunch of peas with olive oil, a bunch of f- French beans with olive oil, pasta undressed sauce or it could be rice or lentils or whatever it is. Everything's separate.
0: That's and
1: very egalitarian. I like that.
0: <laughs> you eat what he eats. And finally, if uh, you could have any sort of profession that's not one that you've already had, a uh, journalist and cookbook author and restaurateur, what would it be?
2: Uh, what would it be? Maybe a historian? I love history. I love politics. Something along those lines. I'm not sure.
0: That, that fits
1: that's. well with what you've already spent a lot of time doing there are some common threads here
0: thank you <laughs> it well, all hey, comes together. thank you so much for coming into this eater upsell studios Pleasure. and uh Nopi is out on book stands right now
1: yeah it's gorgeous it's shiny gold pick it up thank you thanks thank for coming guys. By. Pleasure. On the next episode of The Eater Upsell, we're going to be talking with Gabe Stillman, the restaurateur behind six of the West Side of Manhattan's coolest, most intimate, among some of my favorite restaurants.
0: There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for The Eater Upsell or go to iTunes.com slash Upsell.
1: And as always, you can visit Eater.com where you can find more episodes, read transcripts and all sorts of other cool stuff.
0: The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone.
1: Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bucamo, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Klute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening.